But to today's preach, so we are in the second last week of our series going through the book of Ephesians, or actually it's a letter in the Bible written by an early Christian leader called Paul to a church in Ephesus, and today we're in chapter 5. So if you could open your Bibles to chapter 5, we're in the second part. If you know your Bibles at all, you know it's a little bit of a cultural hot potato that we are addressing today, but it, um, it need not be in a sense, any different to preaching the Word of God, because we believe it's God's truth, and we believe it does us good. So in the first bit of Ephesians, we called our first half of the series Transformed Life, because it's all about what God has done for us, and who we now are, which is the basis of the Christian faith, isn't it? God acts first, God changes us, and then the second half of Ephesians talks about transformed life. So when in the Bible you read about how Christians should live, it's not so that God does something for them so that God loves them. It's because God has done something in them, they should then live. So if you wouldn't call yourself a believer, you've got to get Jesus in your heart and know his love and power to enable you to live this life, but also to motivate you to live it. Otherwise, you just start following rules for the sake of it, as opposed to seeking to honor Jesus. And so Paul talks about that in the first half, and then we've been unpacking what life looks like for us as Christians in the second half. And we've been particularly looking at unity and purity in the church. So this letter is written to a group of people, but also individuals. So we've been looking at the unity of the church, how God makes us one. And then we've been looking at the purity of the church, how we are to abstain from certain passions and desires and lusts that are dishonoring to God. Now what's important to know is those two things, whilst having practical outworking in day-to-day life, they are about God. They tell us something about God, don't they? So unity... Whilst good for us and outworks something out, it speaks about the unity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our purity reflects to the world something of the holiness of God, that God is other and without blemish. So everything as Christians that we live out is actually about that. It's meant to testify. It's meant to show. It's meant to reflect to the world something of who God is and his ways. So this is about that. Can you say that? This is about that. So that's a phrase we're going to come back to because it's really helpful when you start to unpack how we outwork Christian life to remember that this is about that. It's speaking as Christians gathered together but also as individuals. Our lives are to speak to a watching world about God. It's to speak about what he's done for us and what he is like. And now we're moving into the section where Paul starts to address relationships. So he starts to address husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, and in the workplace. And then he starts to talk about our relationship with spiritual powers, which we're going to hear about next week. So this week we're looking at husbands and wives and parents and children. We're not actually going to touch on for the sake of time, although we see how we get on about slaves and masters in workplace. We recently did a work series And then next week, we're going to touch on our relationship with unseen spiritual powers and spiritual warfare. As John Stott puts it, harmony in the home and stability in the fight are the final two topics that Paul addresses. So clearly, we're not addressing everything today with relationships, okay? So if you are single either by choice or you haven't yet got married and you would really love to, whether it's a chosen path for you or whether it's a very difficult testing time for you, this still has a lot to teach us about God. 
But we've got to understand it's not addressing specifically singleness. The Bible does have a lot to say on singleness and commends it as a way of life, either chosen or just the way we find ourselves in. Singleness preaches the gospel in a particular way. And then if you don't have children, maybe out of choice or because it's a painful desire that you have and you haven't yet had, I just want to acknowledge that as we speak about parents and children. The Bible does have a lot else to say about, as I say, being single and how we deal with some of our longings and wants in that. But today we are addressing husbands and wives and parents and children. If you're not a Christian, this is an invitation for you today to see the ways of God. It's an invitation to wisdom that addresses aspects of society that are crumbling around us all the time. Family life is not in a healthy place in the Western world, is it? I don't think I need to convince you about that. The value of family, how family life is worked out, is crumbling around us. And that's in one sense no surprise because of how important it is. And so it will be under, under attack. So I'm going to pray and uh, invite us to really posture and soften hearts. Some of you have no idea what I'm going to say. Others of you are very versed in these scriptures and you wonder, what is he going to say? Um, so let's posture our hearts to receive from the Lord and trust that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. So Lord Jesus, we have sung some amazing declarations this morning. <laughs> You're the Lord of all. I give you my whole life. My praise is only yours. And we do long to live that out and actually to truly live out what we sing because that's the longing of our heart. And so I ask you this morning that you would help us as we look at your words. We believe your truth is life-giving. We believe your truth cuts through hearts and joints and bones and marrows and gets to deeper issues in our heart. And so as best as we know how, we posture our hearts to receive in faith. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us discernment and to lead us into all truth. And everybody said, Amen. So Ephesians 5, we're actually going to pick up on the verses we read last week. So bear with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil, i.e. there's going to be conflict on how to live God's way. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the contrast to unwise, debaucherous living. Be filled with the life of God. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I start with these verses from last week because I hope you know this. When you read your Bible, there's chapter headings and verses, right? So those are not what we would say inspired by God. They're not in their original biblical writings. They are a human edition helpful to help us find things in the Bible. So sometimes we can come to a chapter and think it's a whole new idea in the Bible or a verse separation. We think it's a whole new idea. It's not always the case, okay? We've got to decide where to put chapter and verse, but sometimes there's a flow of thought. And remember, this is a letter written to a church body sharing stuff about church life. So what we're going to say today is not separate to these verses I just read. It's actually a continuation 
of it. And so where it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's going to flavor everything that we say today. Okay? Right? So it's going to be a continuation of that. Today is part of this wider gospel living, this wider response to what God's done, this wider fitting life for the Christian, or as I preached a few weeks ago, what is proper? Can you say proper? What is proper for a Christian, as uh, I read a few weeks ago? So what we're talking about today is wise, spirit-filled, trying to know what the will of the Lord is, and it's about generally us submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But that submitting to one another is not the same in every context or every relationship. Scripture talks about how we submit to governing authorities. It's going to talk about how we children submit to parents. And we're going to talk about how wives and husbands, how wives submit to husbands and what that looks like. Every believer is equal. I mean, this, this is basic Genesis 1 Christianity. Every believer is e- equal in the eyes of God, right? Equal in our dignity, equal in our worth, equal in our sense of calling before God. Equality is a given foundation. We only have one ultimate Lord and Master, and that is God. We submit to Him. We are His servants. We come under Him, and we come under His authority. Is the basic of what it means to be a Christian. It's, mean, it's to say, Jesus, your Lord, and I surrender to you. Not, I'm doing my own thing. Jesus, I'll take you along with me to make me feel good or to give me a bit of peace or to make me feel happy or to appease my conscience. That's not being Christian. A Christian is surrendering our lives to the Lordship of Jesus joyfully and willingly because he's revealed in our hearts our desperate need for him and how good he is. And so generally speaking, we are to live our lives preferring as Christians and deferring to one another out of reverence for Christ. The two greatest commandments are love God and love your... Now, now obviously, you've got to look after yourself well to love people, but if the goal is to look after myself well, uh, we've got something in the wrong order, haven't we? Love God and love your neighbor. And so we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? So how I treat you and you is not because you're worthy or deserving of it, It's because I see Christ through you, right? Because Jesus didn't treat me how I deserved, did he? He treated me way better than I could ever imagine. And so we try to imitate that. That doesn't mean we do it blindly or foolishly or put ourselves in harm's way or put ourselves in abusive situations. You understand that, right? We're not talking about that. That's a whole other sermon, wise working out of these principles. But it's that we do it out of reverence for Christ. So my title this morning is First Love. Can you say First Love? First Love. All things we speak about today are only healthily and fruitfully worked out if we do them to honor God, out of reverence for Christ and out of love for him, seeking to honor him, submitting to him in joy and expectation. Can you smile? The first two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Could we close those doors, guys, please, if that's okay? Thank you. We, we love child life and it's fine that they're making noise and if your child starts to make noise you're absolutely fine but it might be helpful for now so let's dive in okay we're Christ followers I've said this and and, and the important reason I say this is um, because what we talk about won't work if we don't get that we follow a servant-hearted unto death loving others washing feet saviour right 
is a clue in that. We are Christians, Christians. We, we are to model this life that Jesus called us to. And the reason it won't work if we get that, because cultural observation, our culture, predominantly in the West, certainly not in the rest of the world, is obsessed with I, right? So the culture we live in is I before we. Parts of the world is the other way around, right? Collective, we before I. And you actually find your fulfillment in loving your neighbor <laughs> and loving others, doing we. But we live in a time where it's all about me, my personal fulfillment, my personal satisfaction, my personal success, my personal advancement. Now, there's nothing wrong. We should be pursuing the best that we can for God. But if that's the epicenter, we're getting in a lot of problems. If you want marriage or in marriage you're seeking to be happy yourself, if that's the epicenter of your marriage, you will get in trouble. If you seek to have children to make you happy and to fulfill you, it's not a great foundation, right? Because actually it's about loving and serving others. Of course we want to be happy. <laughs> and of course we love how children fulfill us. But what that does, it doesn't answer the question we long for and is not the center of what we're doing. And if you put that at the middle, I can guarantee you your marriage ain't going to be roses every day. I don't know. During this sermon, here's the one rule. Do not nudge or look to the person next to you. Okay? Right? Got that rule. Do it now. Get it all out of you now. Get all the nudges out. Right? There's try and look <laughs> there. All right? And resist every other urge to bump someone next to you. Um, let's go on. Right. Where am I? <laughs> so um, my longing today is that we would see the beauty amidst the mystery of what God calls us to in marriage and parenting. And so picking up and going into today's verses, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ looks like this in these relationships, okay? Mutual sense of submitting looks different in these relationships we're going to talk about because this is about that. So verse 22, wives and husbands. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I want you to pay attention to the number of times as comes up. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, ever, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as... Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, so this is grounding it all in Genesis, not culture, okay? This whole context, all of this should happen, therefore, because of this, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Anyone married agree it's a profound mystery. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is about that. However, lead, let each one of you love his wife, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So I'm very aware, I'm a man and a husband preaching this, and I hope if it was a lady preaching this, she would be very aware of it too. There's a weight and there's a wonder to these verses. Would you agree? 
There's a real weight to them. And uh, I did wonder if I should preach this message, but that's kind of true of every preach. Um, but the conclusion you come to really is you don't preach out of your perfection. You preach out of your conviction that it's the word of God. Now, my life should commend itself to you, okay? And it's like my life's an absolute mess, no efforts to follow God, and I'm just preaching the word. I don't, that doesn't match up. But disclaimer of disclaimers, as a father and as a husband, I have a heck of a lot of work to do, okay? But I'm trying to preach today what the word of God says, and I trust there's some light that commends itself in my life, but where there is a deficiency in my life, my appeal to the Holy Spirit and to you is that you would see through that to what God is saying, right? So if there's anything in me to make you dismiss that, try and put that aside as hard as it might be. Trust that the Lord speaks to us here. Now, what's going on? The reason I asked you, before we dive into wives, husbands, what's going on here is role play. Anyone in the room like role play? Yeah. No, I'm just saying role play, okay? Who likes to do some drama? Well, there's a few people. There's more of you like to do role play than you will admit, okay? But that is what's going on here, isn't it? Be like this, be like this, as this. Be like this, be like this, as this. Do this, as this, because this is about that. So what's going on here is role play, about Christ and the church, okay? Role play about the kingdom of God. And so when you come into this, you think, okay, what is marriage about? Primarily, marriage is about Christ and the church. It's to display the gospel, right? That should be the foundation of every single marriage. And the reason we outwork marriage in a certain way is because it is about that. For this reason, (laughs) husband, wife, leave, get married, cleave, and this mystery is profound, and it's about Christ and the church. So that is, and so marriage won't continue in the new heavens and the new earth. Some of you are like, hallelujah. I was like, oh, I'm not sure. Because it's a temporary sign pointing to a greater fulfillment of something that is to come. If that's not our foundation for marriage, it's the wrong foundation. Right? If the foundation is it's a legitimate biblical position so I can have children, hey, a good in honoring that, but there's something deeper and richer and sweeter going on here in marriage. So role players, yeah, husbands and wives are role playing Christ and the church. So is it because one is more important than the other? No, it's because God has chosen it this way to demonstrate something of Christ and the, and the church. This is about that. The dynamics and the display in marriage is about the dynamics and the display of Christ and the church. If we don't get that, the rest of it are just nice thoughts. And someone, is, someone in an earthly way is choosing how things happen. God has created this to show something else. We need to bear that in mind. So let's start with, let's start with wives so I don't end on that and I can end speaking to myself as a husband. So verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands, important their own. So it's not talking about every woman to every man or every woman who's married to every man who's married. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Jumping to verse 33. Now, it's important when you look at the Bible, if it addresses one thing, it doesn't mean it's not addressing the other thing in other places, okay? Just because it calls the wife to certain things, it doesn't mean it doesn't call a man to express these, or a husband to express these in certain ways. But in this context, Paul is focusing on the wife. So wives are submit to their husbands as to the Lord. It's a chosen act of worship, right? 
Chosen, act of worship. Chosen is very, very important because in our culture, the word submit or subordinate yourself is a bit of a dirty word, is it not? Culturally, over the last, I don't know how long, publicly, leadership, abuse, and failure, I mean, we don't want to submit to anyone right now, do we? Because they're going to let us down. It's, uh, but we're called to submit to our governing authorities. It's a dirty word. But when you look at the gospel, submission or subordination has been dignified by Jesus as a choice. There's a difference when you choose to subordinate yourself as opposed to when it is put on you. Right? One is an empowered appeal to someone who has the freedom to make a choice. The other is an oppressive put on to someone who has no choice. So the very fact Paul says to wives... In this culture, submit yourself to your husband as to the Lord. He's saying make a choice in the Lord to submit yourself. He's addressing something that would have not fitted in that culture because wives often had no rights. They were basically property, right? So he's coming against culture here and he's saying make an empowered choice because, we'll get to this, we're role-playing something else bigger than us here. Okay? So... In terms of dignifying submission, go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Some of us, we know this well. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant than yourselves. Count others (laughs) more significant than yourself. Okay, you see what's going on here? Relationships. Put the other first. Love others. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Similar context. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind. So if you're going to do this, this is what you need to have in mind. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, fought for, held on to, titled. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He subordinated himself even unto death. Even death on a cross, a humiliation to many. Therefore God's exalted him and put him in highest place and one day every knee will bow. Hallelujah. Do you see how subordination can be dignified in the gospel. Jesus didn't consider this equality position something to be grasped at, something to be held, something to be fought for. He, he willingly, for the sake of the gospel, our salvation, he subordinated himself even to the point of death and he emptied himself. It has been dignified through the gospel. It's very different to someone subordinating you. The choice of Christ to subordinate himself for the bigger picture. Now, we also need to understand that we view this life as very long, don't we? Whatever age God gives us until he takes us. But in the context of eternity, it's just it's like a little, little blip, isn't it? And so these things feel good to us, but scripture says they're light and momentary. In, in the context of all that is going on. Jesus also said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. We celebrate and we've sung songs of the victory and the greatness of the one who subordinated himself even unto death. So there are all sorts of layers going on here. But as Steph Liston puts it, and he's been really helpful with this preach, there's, there's, there's a call here to a wife for voluntary, redemptive, powerful, empowering, subordinating themselves 
for the sake of displaying that Christ in the church. That's what is going on here. And if I'm a humbly say, if that is true, what a privilege to display Jesus in a unique way like that. What an opportunity to show Christ to a world that have so many ideas of what Jesus is like. To show them the one who subordinated himself even to death. What a struggle <laughs> to do so, right? In the midst of cultural voices, personal desires, longings, some of us really unhelpful, abusive situations and cultural hangovers. What a struggle. But what dignity to be called to make a willing choice as worship to the Lord. It's an invitation to privilege. Onto husbands. So you can look at, if you are married, you can look at your husband. No, you can do that one. So husbands, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So remember there's role play. It's not exactly the same. Husbands, we are not our wives' saviors, okay? Now, if you have jumped in front of her and saved her from a, I don't know, bicycle run down the hill or something more dramatic. Well done. You're amazing. That's not what it's talking about, okay? Kudos to you. Um, but it's not the same, is it? Okay? It's a, it's a dim, faulty reflection. It's a mystery. <laughs> it's profound. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, the whole point of this, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, so this is where preachers want to go heavy on men, okay, so you feel the weight of this. If we don't feel the weight of this and shudder when it says, in the same way as Jesus does, <laughs> we're missing something, okay? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I know as I say this, there are some of you in this room who have or have had husbands who have done the very opposite of this. Okay? So whilst I want to play a beautiful picture, there is a lot of brokenness amongst us. And it's amazing that you are trusting Jesus and loving Jesus and are here today when that has happened. Okay? There have been many imperfect and terrible examples of this. But I press on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. Can you say nourish? And cherishes it. Say cherish. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Okay. So husbands, I could just put a full stop there. Spend the rest of your life mining those verses and trying to work them out, okay? But I will say a few things. So firstly, it just says that the husband is the head. It's just God's... Now we'll talk about what the head means, okay? Because that's really where the rubber head... It's just God's designed way of things. It's a mystery and it's profound. But it's not saying, husbands, you must be a head. It's just saying, in the creation of God, within marriage, husband is the head. 
Take that responsibility seriously and work it out like this. Now, husbands are also clearly called to submit to Christ because they are part of the church, okay? So there's, there's layers here. There you go. So uh, anything the church is called to do, the husband is called to because we are part of, the, part of the church. We are to love our wives as Christ loves the church, giving ourselves up for them and their flourishing, nourishing and cherishing them because this is about that, okay? Husbands, there is a unique way that we in loving and serving our wives, show the world, right, how Christ loves and serves the church. What a privilege. What a weight. What a struggle. So let's talk about head, heads. What does it mean when the Bible says the husband is the head? Um, or you might hear it in church terms, headship, okay? What, what, what does that mean? In our culture, we think of certain things it means, Okay? So some of us might have no idea what it means. We can think it means authority, right? Or, or domination, headmaster, or head of this, or head of that, okay? Got to understand that it's helpful sometimes, but really unhelpful that we're English, and the New Testament was written in Greek, right? Okay? It's written in Greek, and the word that they used for head that we have translated in English as head was used in multiple ways in that language, and... Uh, I'm not going to give you the definitive answer today, but there's some real struggle Bible study to wrestle with this because there's huge debates over what this means. So some would say it means source, right? Like a head of a river, okay? Um, and others would say it means authority. Others would take a more nuanced view, which is what I do, and say it talks more about prominence, okay? Which carries some sense of what we might call authority, but also responsibility, Okay? Um, and you, you need to do some study for that, and I'm going to recommend a book that wrestles with these things for yourself. I, think, I don't think we necessarily need to go elsewhere to look at what the word means, because if we look in Ephesians, how Paul uses the word head, it's helpful, right? Because it's used in different ways in the New Testament. So how in Ephesians, this letter that Paul is writing on, he's already used head twice. It's an image, right? So he's trying to unpack something of an image he's spoken. So in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said Christ is the head of, essentially, no, 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 not head of the church. It says he's the head over all things for the church. Or he's the head over all things to the church, right? There's a difference there. It's not, I mean, it's true, Christ is head of the church, but that's not how Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 1. He said he's head over all things to the church, or he's head over all things for the church. And you get this image of he's head over all things to the church, for the church, with the church, to serve the church, but also to rule. Okay? So that's how Paul uses it in chapter 1. He's the head over all things to the church, not specifically over the church. So if you like, to rule with, or for the flourishing of the church. And then Ephesians chapter 4, he uses the head imagery again, where you have the head and the body. And it says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you have this picture of nourishment. 
So you have this picture of a head which enables the body, when it plays its part, to be able to flourish and grow itself up. So that is how this image of head is being used by Paul in this letter. Okay, So he's saying, the head of Christ over all things to the church, with the church, for the church. And he's the head of a body which nourishes and plenishes it. So it's not specifically speaking of authority over. In fact, in scripture, husbands and wives, there's only one place it specifically speaks about having authority over each other, if you like. And that's 1 Corinthians 7. And it's where it says, wives have authority over a husband's body. And husbands have authority over a wife's body. It's a mutual thing i.e. when you're married, you're totally given to each other in every single way. So it's the only explicit place it speaks about authority over one another within marriage. Now there's layers to be picked out on there, but as a friend of mine says, if he's sitting on the couch and he wants to fiddle, his, fiddle with his wife's toe and tickle it while they're having a conversation, it's fine. It doesn't need permission. Now she might say, I don't like that, then you've got to work that out, okay? That's another thing altogether. But that's the only place it really speaks about authority over I think sometimes we can be clumsy and say authority over, and particularly culturally that is unhelpful (laughs) in that sense. So Paul brings this image up again of head. It's not the first time he's used it. He's speaking of a headship over or an enabling, a giving of God in the state to Christ for the church to husbands something so that they can be a nourishment to their wives, right? So they can with or to their wives for their flourishing and men we can be good at nourishing ourselves can we not yeah so you're driving home you know dinner's waiting on the table or and you have to stop at the fuel station to fuel up and there's a KFC or there's a Greg's or there's a McDonald's some of you you've been doing this for years on your commute home and you've never told your wife you are nourishing yourself very well and then you're getting through dinner yeah anyone wants to confess their sins now okay We're very good at nourishing ourselves. Are we as quick? Are we as thoughtful? Are we as deliberate at nourishing and cherishing our wives as we are ourselves? We're to come alongside our wives with the grace and the call God has given us, taking responsibility for what he's called us to, an initiative in that, to work together for a flourishing life. Someone said Christ, John Piper, he said this, Christ bound himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. If a man wants to be a Christian husband, he must copy Jesus, not Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, Star Wars fans, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not a big Star Wars fan, I had to look this one up a little bit, but Jabba the Hutt is this big alien who thinks about himself and he's clearly indulgent and self-centered. Hey, we've got to be a bit more, we've got to be like Jesus, a lot more like Jesus than Jabba the Hutt. And, and wives, we need your help, right? Because we have a tendency to be self-centered, self-serving, and because even our best efforts, we get it wrong, right? The planned night surprise getaway is a flop because the room is just horrible, all the food is. The flowers we get are not your favorite In fact, you don't like that color. A deeply romantic gesture comes when you're most tired and least interested. The encouragement can sound patronizing. The attempts to serve the family spiritually and get them out the door and to have family devotions can feel clumsy. 
and unhelpful rather than helpful. The attempt to speak in truth and in love, God's challenge can come at the worst of times. Any husbands can recognize some of what I'm saying. Okay. Should we stop trying? No. Should we learn and get better? Yes. Do we need help from our wives to receive our efforts rather than resist them? Yes, please. And it's a beautiful thing. And it goes the same way. If we're convinced, and you've got to work this out biblically, that the role of a wife and the role of a, a husband, this is hard for our wives too to work this out. It goes against so much of what we're taught by culture, some of our family heritages. We need to help each other live out what the gospel calls us to. And I do want to commend two books in particular. First of all, this one is called Gender Quality. Okay? Um, it's not only about marriage. It actually unpacks the two big debates about the role of men and women in the church and society, complementarianism and egalitarianism. And it looks at both biblical arguments, but it does address um, what we're talking about today, husbands and wives, submission and headship. I think there are a few on the table out there. You're welcome to take them. If you want to leave a donation, you can. I did think about auctioning them right here and now as a fundraiser, but um, there are some on the table. I think there's three, so first come, first serve, but you're not allowed to walk out during the sermon. Okay? So that's a, that's a, it's a very good measured book, although it does land in a certain position. Um, and then Tim, Timothy Keller and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. This is a, I mean, there's lots of good resources, but in terms of unpicking theologically and background, uh, and they come from a slightly different perspective. Kathy Keller comes from a very empowered woman's background, and he comes from a very passive men's background. So they, in their conviction of the roles I'm talking about, they had to learn the opposite roles. It's not always the case. So The Meaning of Marriage by, by Tim Keller. Um, just a final comment, and then we're going to watch a video that I think really gives flavor to this. Um, equality is not the goal of marriage. Okay? Equality is a given. It is the foundation of marriage. Unity is the goal. Okay? Steph Liston says this, right? And he talks about a funny example when they were growing up. Everything had to be equal in their family, Right? If you bought a present for one, you bought the same present for all the others. Right? If one person was having this squash, everyone had to have this squash and exactly the same amount. And it was just a bit weird when we're all fighting for equality because we're different. Each man is different to the other man. Each woman different to the other woman. Equality is the foundation. Man and woman will leave mother and father and they shall become one. Unity is the goal. A togetherness. A working togetherness. Now I understand some in the room would have unsaved husbands or, or wives and there's nuances pastorally clearly can't cover everything today. But equality is a given. Otherwise we end up grasping for it. And it becomes just weird. And a straining and a striving. It's, it's a given. And unity is the goal. Right? Genesis 1's symmetry comes before Genesis 2's asymmetry, right? I.e., God made mankind, gave them equal rule over all things, equal, 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 but, but we're different. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, okay? It's important that we get the sameness or the unity or the equality 
First, it is a privilege to tell the gospel story with one another in marriage. Some of the greatest privileges is when it is absolutely devastatingly difficult. And we learn to forgive and bear with one another wisely and gently and consistently over time. That's also a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. Now being single is also another beautiful gospel picture to declare to the world the fully satisfying nature of Jesus Christ even when it is a wrestle. So I just want us to watch a video for a few minutes and then I'll come back and then we'll touch on the last few things. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him, and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold, for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. And we walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that.
come to an end in a few minutes. Um, there'll be lots of things to pastorally unpick in the weeks and months to come, and uh, some of us feel we're just clinging on by the tip of our fingernails. Other of us, we have a very broken past, and uh, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, some of us were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Praise God for mercy and grace. No matter what your heritage is, there is fresh hope today. Uh, can I encourage you after today, maybe grab that book I mentioned. If you can't afford it and you want it, we'll get you one. Let us know. But let's be deliberate about this. Wrestle with scripture. How does this look in our marriage? How does this work out? What do we think? How can I reflect bits of this as someone who's not married or has an unbelieving husband or a wife that's hugely difficult? Maybe you've never laid a Christian foundation for your marriage. And some of the stuff you just heard there, you think, wow, I didn't know marriage was so rich. Now, it doesn't always look like that culturally and all sorts of other reasons. But the principles are the same. We, we cannot ignore this. We are called to display something to the world, this profound mystery of Christ and the church. And um, there's two extremes we can go, can't we, and errors in these things. Um, and so as, as husbands, we can be just passive, <laughs> can't we? Or we can be overbearing, right? Ne- neither is what God calls us to. We're to be secure servant-hearted men, right? So men, if you need to step up, do so in the grace of God. Let us not be lazy. Let us not be ignorant. Let us not be... And we need the help of the Holy Spirit, yeah? Um, And wives, if you agree with this, how does this look for you? The extremes are we can just resist everything or we can subtly quietly, silently undermine creating an environment that fosters this, or we can live this out as best as we, best as we can. Um, and in a few moments, we'll come back to worship, we'll sing a, a song or two. If you would like prayer or, or, or help uh, with any of that, um, do come to. But I just want to talk about children and parents before we go, which can feel like a, a gear shift, but it's not entirely different. But I'm just going to make a few comments on this one because in chapter 6 it says this doesn't it children obey your parents so if there's any children in the room obey your parents even if they're too young to fully understand obey your parents but again in the Lord for this is right honor your father and mother this is the first commandment with a promise what a privilege that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land fathers Do not provoke, exasperate, be overbearing with your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Once again, Paul addresses a minority group in the culture, children who weren't valued. And he calls them to make a choice. Do you see how he comes against culture? There's people who say Jesus was revolutionary, but Paul wasn't because he never confronted the culture. I, I, I just, I can't see that. <laughs> I think Paul came against it a lot of the time. So you think, children, hey, you think it's just about you, husbands? You think it's just about you, adults, children? Hey, you have autonomy in the Lord to choose something. Submit to your parents as to 
the Lord. He honors them, signifies their dignity and worth. Parents, it is a God-honoring thing to foster and expect obedience in your children. In fact, it brings blessing to them, that it may go well with them. When we raise obedient children, it enables them to honor God in this way. Through scripture, you see children's disobedience to their parents as considered as disobedience to God. Now again, we're not talking about false things or human rules. It's in the Lord. You understand that. There's wisdom. Children shouldn't obey their parents and things that contradict the word of God. And then we're called not only to not provoke our children too much, and I have been guilty of that at times, to provoke our children, Right? We're certainly not called to be passive and do nothing with our children, but we are called to discipline them. And when you hear the word discipline, I hope you think of two things, right? Retributive, i.e. coming against that which is wrong, but discipline's a positive word. It's formation. It's creating a discipline in children. It's forming children, and we're to do it in the instruction of the Lord, right? Both of us, but particularly here, Paul's addressing fathers. We are to take some responsibility for raising our children in the Lord. Now, doesn't mean we do everything. Clearly not. Right? But it's not something that we can abdicate on. During childhood, parents are to represent God to their children and to mediate his love and authority towards them. Again, Paul addressing fathers, telling them not to be overbearing, would have been culturally challenging. Yeah, because fathers were seen, you know, top of the ha- top of the house, everything. Pulled in. Now, fathers, don't do this. That would have been countercultural again. Not only does he tell them what not to do, he calls them to bring up their children in the ways of the Lord, not casually or incidentally, but deliberately in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What a privilege as parents, but also as children. So all these things we've spoken about are a beautiful picture of fruitful life, aren't they? If we can, with the power of the Holy Spirit, work them out gently and kindly as Christ would have us do. But it's hard, is it not? It's a vision that calls us to something grander than satisfying ourselves by being married or having children. There's a bigger picture that we're invited into. And we spend our whole lives trusting God, repenting, forgiving bearing with one another and going again and again and again and again. But as Al preached last week, there is help.